Gospel of John, chapter 18. We're going to speak today about Jesus confronting Pilate as the kingdom of God comes face to face with the kingdom of man. And this is really a powerful set of verses. And so, uh, John 18, John 18, verse 36, Jesus before Pilate. Uh, Actually, we'll start with 35. And this is Pilate speaking. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born. And for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. This is an amazing uh, confrontation between Jesus and Pilate. And, And the lesson for us here is on multiple levels, because what we see here is as Jesus is carving out his kingdom, demonstrating that in that kingdom, he is truly a divine king but making certain to, so, to show that, the, that God's kingdom is separate from the kingdom of man and that the kingdom of man is secondary, clearly, to the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus speaks with incredible respect and civility uh, to this man who is about to execute him uh, in terms of putting him on the cross. Now, this confession that we read here, that Jesus speaks about, you will not find it in the other gospel accounts. It is only in John that you find what we call, what other apostles have called the good confession of Jesus. And so what I want you to do is I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy, verse 13. In the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. Now, I want you to understand something time-wise as I build this, this uh, teaching lesson today. That, that lesson, that, Paul, that, that letter that Paul wrote, is written somewhere around the year 58, 58 A.D., The Gospel of John is written somewhere around 90 A.D., which means that the Gospel of John account is written about 32 years after Paul will write this letter to Timothy, in which Paul delineates the fact that Jesus gave the good confession. How did Paul know? What did he do? He couldn't read the Gospel of John because the Gospel of John wouldn't be available for 32 years. I want you to see something. The account, the other Gospels, didn't have the good confession in it. It's only in the Gospel of John. Well, I'm going to say that two things are going on. I believe that through the Holy Spirit, Paul was aware of this, because obviously it was delineated 30-some years later by John. I also believe that Christians uh, knew about it, earlier, wrote about it earlier, and you see why everything in, in, the, in the Bible and in the New Testament all 
fits together. The problem is, and, and this is, I'll say I was guilty of this myself growing up, when I would read something like this, it wouldn't faze me because I'd say, well, yeah, that's no big deal. It's in the Gospel of John. Wise up, John. There is no Gospel of John at the time that Timothy, this letter to Timothy is written. So you see how the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God uh, is maneuvering this and speaking to us. And so the confession is powerful, not only in the words that it says, all right, that he is the king of the kingdom of God, uh, but in the manner in which it is given. He's giving it while he's on trial before someone who has the authority basically to execute him. Uh, it is simple, kind, direct, helpful. Jesus respects the authority of Pilate. Never once do you see Jesus denigrate Pilate. Never once do you see him saying, you're a loser. You're a loser. You have no authority over me. I despise you. You are despicable. Jesus never says that. Instead, Jesus, Jesus gives respect uh, to the human government, gives respect and submission to the government, human government, yet at the same time, elevating the kingdom of God. And this is what I want to speak to you about today. He treated them with respect. Uh, do him because of the office, not because of the man, not because of the man, but because of the office that the man was, uh, represented. Christ is speaking of the divine power, the divine kingdom versus human affairs. And they're on very different levels. And so this lesson today is about how you should speak, how you should work to a lost world. How do you speak to people who despise you, who don't, don't respect what you say, who don't believe what you believe, uh, and yet sometimes may be in a position of authority? How do we live today when we're in a country in which it's, it's probably a post-Christian nation? Our, our government is no longer a Christian government. The United States is no longer truly a Christian nation. All you have to do is watch the Supreme Court hearings this week. And you won't recognize right away what happened to this country. Well, let me clue you in. This country has devolved. It has devolved. And so how do we as Christians, how do we respond? How do we react when we see government acting like this? And Jesus is giving the prototype for this in a very clear way. Uh, and so the first thing is understanding what is the kingdom of God? Because Jesus is referring here to the kingdom of God. And so is the kingdom of God uh, in one particular spot? Is it an abstract thought? Because the Bible refers to it in very different ways. Take a look at Luke 17, verse 20. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Let's understand that. The kingdom of God resides in the heart of every single believer. Once we accept Jesus Christ and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God resides in our heart. God speaks to us in our heart. That's why the, the sermon that we heard today uh, about the, the tent of meeting and the tabernacle is so poignant as it relates to what we study here. We don't go to a physical place. 
God is not in one physical place. They could build the temple in Jerusalem tomorrow, and God doesn't reside in that temple. We worship God in spirit and in truth, and that means he is in the hearts of the believers, and that's important. And so that's what this kingdom of God is about. Uh, and so here's Jesus indicating very clearly he is a king. He is a divine king. He has more right to that title than any king who ever sat any place in this world. He is the king of all things, the king of the universe, the very creator himself. Uh, and what's, what's so absurd to me here is, is that uh, Pilate uh, is obviously pricked by the Holy Spirit, I believe. He's convicted by the Holy Spirit. He knows something is very different with Jesus, and yet he doesn't really see clearly. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 19. John 19, verse 8. When, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Now, this is important because here you see the kingdom of man juxtaposing itself with the kingdom of God. Don't you realize who I am? Don't you realize the authority and the power that I have over you? I can execute you today. And look at the answer that Jesus gives. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. So what does this mean? It means Jesus is teaching us that the worldly authorities only have their authority as is given to them by God. That means that God has created government. The very design of government, the authority of government comes from God. That doesn't mean that God approves of the application of government. Uh, there are many governments that are detestable, detestable, violating people's will, people's rights in so many ways. That does not fall within the ambit of the approval of God. But in general, the concept of government the concept of the authority of, of government comes from God. God created government. In fact, when you go back and you see what happens after God destroys the human race after the flood and Noah's family steps off the ark, the very first thing that God tells Noah is that from now on, anyone who takes the life of another man, takes the life of another man, will be put to death. Meaning what? Meaning that the government, the ruling class of those people who would be in charge, have the right to defend and protect the people. God gave them that right. That right is coming from God. And so let's understand this, that you see this, that there is, while there is a separation of church and state, while there is a separation of church and state, yet in some ways they overlap. Meaning what? meaning that pretty much most of the governments in this world have capital punishment for murder. Where do you think that came from? God, the Bible, the commandments, the rules about robbery, the, rule, the rules about larceny, 
all those rules, most of the rules that have come together and have been codified by God uh, have been adopted in many ways by government. And so Jesus now is speaking on this issue. Jesus is confronting Pilate. And I find it so incredible that Jesus is reminding Pilate of the very authority that Jesus has and that Pilate is using and that it is only delegated by God. The authority that you have over me comes to you only by God. Now, here's the thing. When government acts in a way that is outside the will of God, at some point the curtain comes down. And every major uh, historical event that you look at from the beginning of time in terms of seeing governments, when governments get what I will call it despicable outside of the norms of God, at some point God intervenes. There's not a single example that I can think of in which one of these uh, despicable governments is allowed to exist. God may allow it to exist for a while, but at some point in time, the curtain comes down. Most recently, the, the, the example to look at is Germany during World War II, as despicable a man as Hitler was, as, as he thought he could control the entire world, when he began to exterminate the Jewish people. At that point, when he began to do that, what happens? The curtain comes down. All of a sudden, this guy who never made a mistake in terms of uh, his tactical advantages, as his armies went out, all of a sudden he stopped listening to his uh, generals. Why? Because God intervenes. You understand? God intervenes. He will not allow that kind of government to continue. And then what happens? That government is destroyed uh, and displaced. You see it even with the fall of the Soviet Union. All right? When you see it collapse right in front of our eyes without a gun being fired. How does this happen? It happens because the intervention of God, that God is the one that, that decides what authority is appropriate and what authority is not. And so this becomes an important point in terms of this lesson. What is the role that God has created for government and how are we to respond to it? This has been a challenging period of time for us as Christians because you want to know what I mean. All of a sudden, you'll have a president that you like and then four years later, there's an election and all of a sudden, you have a president that you don't like. All right. Then you watch the Supreme Court hearings and you see what's going on in those hearings. And I'm sure you are asking, like many people, can this be appropriate? Can this be right? Is this a country that is being led by God? What is happening? What is the role of the Christian? How do I as a Christian fit in in terms of looking at this picture? Uh, and so we need to focus on what the Bible says and how did Jesus react? And so here is this example of our Lord and Savior standing before Rome, looking at Rome, knowing that Rome has the authority over him in terms of his physical body, and yet indicating that Rome only stood where it is because of the divine will of God. And that if, in fact, he was worried about an earthly kingdom, his followers would rise up in revolt. And yet that wasn't the case because he wasn't worried about an earthly kingdom. He came for a greater purpose. And so as we want to drill down on this issue, I want you to turn to Romans 13, verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. Underline that. The authorities that exist have been established by God. 
Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but because of conscience. Now, let's talk about the context under which this is written. When he writes this letter, he's in prison. He's not in prison in Rome. He's imprisoned in Ephesus. He's imprisoned because as a result of his preaching, there were riots. And so he's imprisoned. And there he is imprisoned under the authority of Rome, uh, recognizing and writing to, to the Christian people that we have a responsibility, even under the Roman Empire, of submitting to the authorities. Now, that's not an absolute right, an ongoing right of submission. At some point in time, that is a delegated uh, right that God can remove. Because when government acts in a despicable way, outside the will of God, and begins to enforce rules and regulations that are not godly, we have ample evidence in Scripture where Christian leaders ignored the rule of the governing authorities. When Peter and John and Paul and Silas were told, stop preaching, you have no authority to preach, stop preaching. And they continued to preach. Why? They continued to preach even as they were in prison because they said that no man could tell them to do what God had told them to do. No one could stop them. And so there you understand this, this picture, understand this picture of how we as Christians bow to the submission of God. And then I'll give you another example, a more recent example of the same thing. Take the example of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, I hope that each of you have in your home library the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer written by Eric Metaxas. Make it your, your business to have that book in your library. That's a book that everyone should read. Why do I say that? Because that is the prototypical example of how a devout man of God came to understand what his role was when the government exceeded the authority of God and became the implementation of evil. Because what happened there? Here's Bonhoeffer trying to protect the German church, trying to elevate the church and bring it back to the original church of confessing the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hitler succeeding in taking over the church and putting ministers and bishops in place who effectively were Nazis. And the church is devolving. And, and at some point in time, Bonhoeffer, who could have left Germany, he was outside of Germany when World War II started. He was in the United States, who he decided he would travel back to Germany to be there because he felt the call of God was on him to be there with his people and lift up God and Christ in a place that was empty of Christianity. And so here he is. At some point in time, Bonhoeffer sees the evil of that government, and he sees millions of Jews being persecuted and putting put them to death. And so what happens? 
Bonhoeffer decides, along with another group of Christian people, that Adolf Hitler must be executed and removed. And so here's the point I want you to understand. Here's the point I want you to understand. When the government becomes so evil and so despicable, then God does not expect us to submit. God does not expect us to submit. And here's the other point of that. When that happens, uh, it's just like the rules of how God looks at us as to how we operate within a godly government. Here's the point of that. When God calls us to submit to the godly government, if in fact you are conscripted in an army, you have an obligation to go. If you are given uh, a bill for taxes, I'm sorry to tell you this, you have to pay your taxes. You understand? You can't say, oh, I don't like the way this money is being spent. Uh, it's not being spent in the way I would, I would spend it. Uh, I'm not going to pay. No, that's a violation of God's will. And I can show you and I will show you that Jesus repudiates that kind of conduct. So I, as, as I bring this uh, to your attention, I want you to turn, if you would, to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verse 1. Let me set this up. This is written somewhere about 800 years before the birth of Christ. You got that? 800 years before the birth of Christ. And this is the prophet Isaiah giving a prophecy about what will happen. And the prophecy that he is talking about here will take place somewhere about 250 years later. And he brings up the name of a man called Cyrus. Out of the blue, there's no Cyrus in Israel. There's no Cyrus that we know of. But this is all about Cyrus. And I want to show you how God will use even pagan people. Verse 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus whose right hand I take hold of, and I'm going to tell you now who Cyrus is. He is the emperor of the Persians who will come in in 250 years, conquer Babylonia, conquer the Babylonians, remove them from, from power. And even though the Babylonians had secured as hostages thousands of Jewish people, Cyrus would come in under the Persians, take over Babylonia, and, and basically take over the hostages that are there in Babylon. And so now here he is speaking about this Cyrus. This is what the Lord says to his anointed to Cyrus. Wait a minute. Stop. Stop. To his anointed? To his anointed? This pagan? This godless guy? His anointed? What does it mean? It means that within the will of God, he can appoint and use even godless people to effectuate his will. This is why I'm speaking to you about the role of government. Why am I, I am speaking to you about when we have elections and you look at godless people who somehow get elected and you look at these Supreme Court hearings and you're sick to your stomach. I want you to think of this, this prophecy about my anointed Cyrus, who at the time this is given is not even alive. It's 250 years ahead of time and how God in this prophecy speaks about him as being anointed, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him 
and to strip kings of their armor to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. What does this mean? It means that in his execution as emperor of the Persians, God is using him to give him victory after victory. And that victory will include coming in and wiping out Babylon and taking charge of the Jewish hostages. Does this blow your mind? It blows my mind. It blows my mind. The little box that we have where we think that God only, you know, he's only here, here in our room. You know, he's only taking care of the, the number of people in our church. He's only, you understand? And you understand the greater, the greater infinite will of God, how so much goes on in the will of God that we can't even understand it. And you see this aspect And so this is all important because all of this is important as Jesus stands before Pilate. This is the history of God. Then he goes on in verse 2, I will go before you, Cyrus, and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places so that you may know so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. Oh, my Lord Jesus. I will go before you and I will give you victories, you pagan, you emperor, so that you will come to know that I am the God of the universe. Fast forward. 250 years later, the Jewish people have been in captivity for 70 years in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And Cyrus comes in and conquers Babylon. And when he comes in, Daniel takes out this passage from the Torah and says to this godless person, says to this godless person, by the way, you should know that your name was written by the God of the universe. And he shows him. And Cyrus is blown away. This godless pagan cannot believe that God, 250 years before, actually wrote his name in a prophecy. And so what happens? What happens is that Cyrus allows the people of Israel to go back. How do you like that? He releases them from being hostage and allows them to go back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. The very pagan emperor winds up being the handmaiden of God. You see how God works? You see why God tells us and directs us to submit to the authorities? To me, this is an extraordinary, extraordinary event. And this is even written about by Josephus, uh, in, in other writings, uh, in, in, in which uh, Josephus writes incredibly about how important this was. Now, this isn't the only time that this occurs. If you get a chance to follow along with me, turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. All right? About 50 pages back in the Bible from where we are. All right? Jeremiah 25, verse 8. Well, we'll start with verse 7. Let me set it up. This is Nebuchadnezzar now. All right? This is Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and he is the ruler of Babylon. 
He is the ruler of Babylon. Um, and so uh, he is now about to come in and take the Jewish people under his authority and take them hostage. The Jews will be removed from Israel. They will be taken uh, and will be brought to Babylon. Daniel will be one of those men that will be taken. He's a young man. He's only about 15 years old. Um, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be taken. The cream of the crop of the Jewish people will be taken, removed from Israel. Why? Because the Jewish people did not submit to God. Verse 7, Jeremiah 25, verse 7. And this is the prophecy now, just before they will be taken into captivity. But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord to the Jewish people. And you have provoked me with what your hands have made, and you have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Underline it. What? What? Your servant, this despicable pagan, your servant, read the words, folks. It's not John Garippa making it up. Your servant, your servant, my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them all against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. And guess what? He did. And so Nebuchadnezzar came in. He, he invaded Israel, invaded Judah, and effectively eviscerated it, wiped out the temple. Most people think that the Ark of the Covenant was taken at that time uh, from, from the temple there and removed it to Babylon, eviscerating it. And now they are there for 70 years in captivity until God's other servant, Cyrus, the pagan, is now commissioned to release them. So you understand this. You see the role of government. Uh, and turn, if you would look at 1 Peter chapter 2, just as I give you another citation to support what I'm saying. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. I want to give you multiple citations for this. Verse 13, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. And so there you see what our, what our role is as God has called us to submit to authority as we are not to become stumbling blocks. Um, and so Jesus practiced this. Jesus practiced this even in his ministry. Uh, and if you would turn, please, look at Mark chapter 12. And you know that the, the religious elite always tried to trip Jesus up. They were always looking for a way to make him look like he was violating the rule of, of Rome. Now turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 12 uh, and look beginning with verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. 
they came to him and said, teacher, and I love, love that. I love that. It's such a, a despicable way. I can just see them going, teacher, you know? It's like when people will say to me, counselor, whenever somebody says that to me, the hair on the back of my neck goes up because I know it's disingenuous. It's not, it's not a genuine question. Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? How's that? How do you like that? There it is, right at the heart. Should we stop paying our taxes? We're under control by these Romans. Should we stop paying our taxes? What do you say, Jesus? You're supposedly the top uh, teacher in Israel. What do you say, Jesus? And you see that they're trying to catch him up, trying to catch him up. But Jesus knew this hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar. Give to God that which is God. We support the kingdom of God. We're interested in the kingdom of God, the divine things, the things that relate to this world. That's another kingdom. That's the kingdom of man. God wants us to submit. We pay our taxes. If we're drafted into an army, we go into the army. We submit and do what we have to do until the government violates the ongoing will of God. And then calls God calls us in another vein. But that's rare. That's rare. I mean, we need to be very careful ab about that. And so you seeing this, Jesus was not interested uh, in a political revolution. He didn't care about a political revolution. And in fact, some of the people that supported Jesus fell away from support because they thought he was a political messiah. They wanted him to be in opposition to Rome. This was their guy. This is what the Jewish elite were waiting for. This Messiah soldier, leader who would come. And, and in his, when he would come, he would lead the people of Israel in political revolt and throw out the bounds of Rome. God couldn't care less about the bonds of Rome. How could God care when, in fact, he's already used Nebuchadnezzar? He's already used Cyrus, despicable people, pagan people, in order to effectuate his will. And his will was that Rome would stay in charge. And Jesus understood it. Jesus understood it. You know, the Roman Empire stood for 1,000 years. It stood from 500 B.C., uh, and this is pretty much the high point of the Roman Empire right now during the lifetime of Jesus. It would eventually go, go out and become extinct somewhere around the year 500, 400 A.D., okay? So God didn't allow it to exist forever. There came a time when the curtain came down. But I want, I want to show you another example, again, of Jesus submitting to the authorities. Turn, if you would, to Matthew 17. Verse 24, after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma 
tax, came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. And I want you to get, get a picture for this. Jesus is in, the, I believe, the house of Peter. Jesus is there first. Peter is outside talking to these people. Jesus comes back into the house. Notice, Peter doesn't say to Jesus, Jesus, we got a problem here. You don't know what I've just heard outside on, this, on the street. You don't hear that. The first person that speaks is Jesus because Jesus knew what they said. Jesus had heard uh, uh, through his spirit what they were saying and what they were doing. And so when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. And Jesus says the following. What do you think, Simon, he asked, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes from their own sons or from others? Understand what Jesus is saying here. Simon, what do you think? You think the kings collect the tax from their children or do they collect it from others? Well, the answer was quite obvious and Peter understood it. From others, from others, Peter answered then the sons are exempt. Jesus said to him, but this is Jesus now. You understand? You see Jesus in his sensitivity to the culture, sensitivity to the lost, sensitivity to the perceptions of those who have not followed him. He's sensitive, but so that we may not offend them. How about that? Go to the lake and throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. This is one of the more amazing things I find in the Bible. Can you imagine this? Seriously. I mean, think about this. Stop. Take a, think, think about it. Take a breath and just think about what you're hearing. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus tells him, oh, no problem. We're paying that tax. Go to the, go to the lake. Put your line in. Just put your line in. And the very first fish you pull up, open that fish's mouth, and you're going to find a four drachma coin, by the way, not a two drachma coin. See, because Jesus doesn't just go halfway. You understand? Jesus doesn't go halfway. Jesus goes full way. I know, Peter, you got to pay your tax too. There's a four drachma coin. I'll pay my, it'll pay my tax and it'll pay your tax. You think Jesus didn't submit to the governmental authorities? Do you understand why, why I'm, I'm, I'm giving you this lesson? And so here's the thing. Here's the point. Government stands for the reason to defend us from evil. Government stands for the purpose to protect us from wrongdoers. Government stands for the purpose of how, allowing us to have civility in our society and to have laws that, that give us a predictability of life. That's the purpose of government. That's why we submit, even why we pay taxes, even why when, when from time to time, when we're offended with the government, we still bow in submission. Why? Because our leader, Christ, our Savior did it. And if he did it, even when he stood before Pilate, then you can do it today, even when you're unhappy with the government, when you're unhappy with the Supreme Court rulings, when you're unhappy with the next election, when you're unhappy with when government acts in inappropriate ways. I want you to think of Jesus, how he acted, how he spoke, and what it means to be a Christian. Let's close. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for these words. 
Lord, you've inspired us today. Help us to live in accordance with Jesus, to demonstrate the same level of submission and civility to a lost world that even when they confront us, Father, to live in that kind of submissive life. Help us, Lord, to elevate you and to raise you up in every way. And so the world will be astonished when they see how we act and how we live that kind of life. Protect our people. Be with them this week and bring them back safely to continue the study of your word. Father, we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.